Aloha and welcome to I Hate My Voice, the podcast where we deep dive into our dysfunctional relationships with our voices while also learning to turn it all around. My name is Nikki D and I'm an award-winning vocalist, transformational vocal coach, and founder of the Diva Academy. I have just one mission with this podcast, to inspire and empower you to actually fall in love with your voice. Baby, come back. Yes, I'm back. This is Nikki D, and you are listening to episode three of I Hate My Voice. And I have this fantasy about finding a new song every week that has the word back in the title. (laughs) That one is actually, I thought it was a Doobie Brothers song. Turns out it's by a group called The Players or Player. I don't know, one or the other. And I just think it's kind of fitting because a lot of what I wanted to talk about today uh, has its roots in misogyny. So (laughs) randomly picking a song from a band called Player seems uh, fitting. But if you have no idea who I am or what this podcast is about, why it's named I Hate My Voice, or why I'm still harping on vocal shame, then please go back and listen to episodes one and two, and all of your answers will be found in those episodes. I am feeling not so hot today. I'm actually feeling like the weight of the world is on my shoulders because the world is kind of a dumpster fire right now, and There are so many things going on, I wouldn't even know where to begin, although I think that in speaking about vocal shame, you could look to a number of different world topics, issues, things that are going on right now, everything from war and genocide and misogyny, and there are all sorts of areas I really don't want to get into um, because I, I want to stay focused on the voice and in particular vocal shame. But I think it really is a good tie-in because I'm just feeling a lot of heaviness today, a lot of weight. And so many of the issues that are going on in the world today have a strong link to the reason people hate their voices, the reason that we have these dysfunctional relationships with our voices. So in my capacity as a vocal coach for the last 20 plus years, I think one thing I definitely know how to do is to help empower people to not be afraid of their voices, to use them, to do what they want with them, to feel more confident in them. And I think that is just as um, useful a skill as any in a world where so many voices are silenced, oppressed, suppressed. Things just feel really heavy. And when I'm feeling heavy and down, the first place in my body that I notice it tends to be in my throat, in my voice, in my ability to produce vocals the way that I am accustomed to. I think having a strong vocal technique, at least as a singer, when I'm feeling weighed down, I have to use a completely different kind of technique. I have to adjust my technique to compensate for the weight that is on my body and on my heart and in my throat. So if anyone out there can relate to that, I think they will find some value in this episode. In the last episode about vocal shame, I talked a lot more about the personal reasons that many of us have a dysfunctional relationship to our voice. The more personal parts of our history, our specific family history, our upbringing, etc., that have led us to have this sense of shame around our voice. And in this episode, I wanted to just pull back a little bit and look at it through a wider lens. I wanted to look at vocal shame through a much wider lens. So what better time than (laughs) 
at a time when the, the world is both literally and figuratively on fire as I record this. I think I want to pull it back and make it as make things as general as possible because I want the maximum number of people to be able to to relate to what I'm going to talk about. I do want to put a positive spin on it, and I will, but when you look back at our history and you look at the history of the silencing and the oppression of people's voices throughout history, throughout world history, and even if you zoom back into modern days and if we just take the last century, for example, let's just look at the plight of, of women. And I'm not going to get into gender politics here. I'm not going to get into intersectionality or any of that. I'm just talking about historical events like women's suffrage, right, for the right to vote, and civil rights, which affected multiple marginalized groups of people, and um, feminism and the Me Too movement. I think, as a woman, I can speak to the effects of... of <laughs> of a lot of these movements on my personal life and the way that I was socialized. And there are so many more identities, or I should say groups that I identify with. I'm as a native Hawaiian, as someone of Asian descent and Portuguese descent and French and Tahitian. And I have royal descent. I have Appalachian hillbilly descent. I mean, there, I, I wear a lot of hats. I definitely have the tendency to become a sort of um, chameleon depending on my environment. And I think growing up in a mixed race family with multiple cultures being represented and lived out throughout my life, I have a somewhat unique perspective, I think, on world history and um, the oppression and silencing of, of marginalized communities. I also am a member in, of the LGBTQ community. Bottom line is I'm a I'm a woman of color. I'm an LGBTQ woman of color who passes as white and straight. So I've seen things from both sides. I've lived the extreme privilege of my perceived race and sex and gender and class, etc., economic background. And so I don't for a moment discount that privilege. And at the same time, that's not how I personally identify and I've also felt the sting of not belonging to a lot of the groups that I identify with personally. So all of that to say that my own personal vocal shame is rooted in so much more than, you know, a shitty childhood or a few shitty things people said to me as a kid, you know, living on within me. I'm hearing, still hearing the voices of the critics throughout my life. And, and I've internalized a lot of that criticism uh, from family members or mentors of mine maybe romantic partners, and that has stayed with me. And I, it's a constant battle for me personally to work through all of those combined issues, right? If I pull back the lens, if I widen the lens, it's about so much more than just my personal little upbringing and the home I grew up in, right? So the reason this is all <laughs> coming out of my mouth today, again, I'm feeling very heavy about the state of things in the world and there are definitely things going on for me personally that have got me feeling pretty heavy. So, you know, if even one person listens to this who's having a shitty day or a shitty week or year or going through something really heavy, I just want you to know you're not alone. And and for those who are concerned with vocal work and improving their voice and having more confidence and, you know, having a voice that's reliable and that they can turn to and and use at the drop of a hat without fear of it failing them. That's what I'm here to show you how to do. And that comes from a combination of, you know, changing that mindset, that dysfunctional mindset, that relationship with the voice from something 
you know, really negative or critical to something, starting by turning it towards something a little more neutral, right? It's not going to go from love to hate in one fell swoop, or from hate to love, I should say, in one fell swoop. It's a process that takes time, just like any relationship. But you got to kind of start at the beginning, and that starts with the mindset. So in last week's episode, I got pretty personal. I, I didn't get into really great detail, but I did get pretty personal about my own vocal trauma, I guess you could call it, my vocal shame. And I think that's important as a coach to be really relatable to my clients. I, I don't think I've, I've ever once attempted to come across as some sort of, you know, happy-go-lucky, everything's always been great, and I'm, you know, I have this great relationship with my voice. I think, in fact, my superpower, if anything, has been my ability to just be very honest and blunt and brutal about how hard it is to rely on such a delicate and fragile part of my body um, to make a living. It has not been easy. And for those that I've helped throughout the years, improve their voices, gain greater, you know, vocal confidence and empowerment and all those wonderful adjectives that go into my marketing, I think what I'm most proud of is my ability to create an environment for them that was authentic and genuine and hopefully disarming. Because if they can't talk to me about the sources of their vocal shame, there is no way I'm going to be able to help them reach their full vocal potential. I said this in the last episode. So the point of all this is to start to uncover the things that hold us back. So today was supposed to be just about talking about a historical and societal and cultural perspective around vocal shame. And I think I'm doing that in a roundabout way. And again, it's really, it's really a, a a tough time in the world right now. It's a tough time in the economy. It's a tough time um, all around environmentally, um, certainly conflict and, and war and borderline, you know, world war at this point. So yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot to hold on to for anyone. And for a lot of people, I'd say for the vast majority of people, it is natural. It is one of the first things that feels weighed down in their body is their throat, is their voice. And there are many, I think there are both physiological and psychological reasons for that. And I want to be clear that when I speak about the voice in general, if I'm speaking about the mechanics of the voice, it's usually going to be around a topic related to vocal technique, right? The engineering, the mechanics of the voice. But otherwise, when I talk about the voice and when I am a little bit more esoteric. I'm not just talking about the vocal instrument, right? The folds inside of the larynx, inside of the trachea, inside of the throat. I'm talking about the metaphorical voice as well, or particularly when it comes to marginalized folks. So if we were just to take women as an example, right? I mentioned earlier women's suffrage and feminism, civil rights, Me Too, etc. just in the last century. I think what stands out for me the most in today's society is the fact that we really haven't come very far when it comes to the criticism and the policing of women in general, of their bodies and of their voices. And you can do your own research on this. I'm, I'm not going to get too political. I just want to say that in the last decade or so, there's been quite a bit of backlash against young women in particular for using their voices. So whether they're in the media in some capacity, whether they're on TV or in film, or they are on YouTube, or they're, you know, on the radio, there is so much criticism around particular trends, um, vocal trends, that I think are very tempting to label young person trends or young women trends. 
So a couple of the more obvious ones, you can find all sorts of articles, including from very reputable publications, very widely read publications, online articles, print articles, YouTube videos, etc., about a couple of these trends in particular. They are vocal fry and uptalk or upspeak. And I think anyone who's interested in vocal work and has done any research on their own voice or has taken voice lessons or has, you know, been curious enough to explore these topics online, you have probably come across such criticism. And of course, the irony is that these are vocal trends that have been present for all of recorded history, at least as far as video and audio recorded history. I mean, Sean Connery and James Bond used vocal fry and we considered it sexy and plenty of NPR hosts or, you know, radio hosts use the male, I'm talking about males, have, um, use vocal fry, which is basically that uh, creaky sound that comes at the end of your sentences when you lower your pitch. It's more obvious in women just because our natural voices tend to be higher than men's. We have a shorter, let's just say that for those who have a shorter, (laughs) who have shorter vocal folds and therefore a, a higher pitched voice naturally, when we do take it down, and I'm using a ton of vocal fry today, partly because I'm tired, partly because I'm feeling heavy, And partly because I think anytime a woman in particular is giving any sort of a talk, they, of course, want to be taken seriously. And if I were to speak up here in my more natural voice, I think that would potentially invite, and I could be wrong, but it could potentially invite comparisons to Minnie Mouse or, I don't know, Betty Boop maybe. But particularly when I'm speaking, I bring my voice down quite a bit especially in a, in a lecture situation or a teaching situation, I tend to bring it down. And so at the end of my sentences or phrases, you can hear that, right? So this is modal speech where you can hear pitches as I talk. And then this is vocal fry, 10 times worse in this condenser mic. But this has been, you know, widely criticized and mocked. There have been sketches done about it. The Kardashians are, have been highly criticized for it. And again, this is something that has existed forever, and it's rarely, if ever, criticized in men. Now, upspeak is kind of the opposite. It's where the end of your sentences go up, as though every phrase and sentence you utter, every statement you make is actually a question or has a question mark at the end, right? So uptalk or upspeak, you know, the criticism of that one is it makes you feel unsure, it may, or it makes you seem unsure, it makes you seem unreliable, it makes you seem insecure. Whereas with vocal fry, some of the criticisms include just, you know, being annoying, being um, phony or an attempt at sounding disaffected. Some have criticized it for sounding, I guess, similar to upspeak, like sounding like the person can't be taken seriously, like they're too young to have developed their voice in a mature way. So there's all sorts of, you know, when, when a woman uses either of these things, she's definitely labeled as insecure or less competent, which I don't think is fair because again, vocal fry and upspeak are also used among men of all ages. The host of the This American Life podcast, Ira Glass, he actually dedicated a segment of a podcast episode to this topic because they were getting just these vitriolic letters sent in to the show about the young women announcers on their show. And he himself made the observation that, well, I use both of these. I have both of these vocal tendencies and I've never received a letter of complaint. And I really admired that he did that. You can look it up. It's, I think the segment was called Freedom Fries, which is pretty clever play on words <laughs> regarding vocal fry. 
But I want to make just a couple of quick points because I spent the vast majority of this episode being kind of downtrodden and feeling very heavy. And I hope that next time I'll be a little more chipper. But a couple of points I want to make. Number one, a lot of things, not just vocal traits or characteristics, tend to be highly criticized in women and not in men. Okay. And I'm not, again, I'm not going to get into the politics of, of gender or any of that right now. I'm just making very broad statements. I would much rather bring in um, people who identify differently to speak for themselves. Draw your own conclusions when it comes to the patriarchy and misogyny, but I just don't think a whole lot of people are going to argue about the double standard uh, that women are held to and men are not. So that's one, that's one point. The other point I want to make as a coach, as a vocal technique um, specialist, if you will, someone who has performed professionally and semi-professionally for over 30 years and who, who has coached vocalists for over 20 years, I just want to say that some of these trends, I mean, there are trends that are criticized in women aside from vocal fry and upspeak, uptalk. Uh, you've got, you know, breathiness is criticized as being manipulative or immature or airheaded. You've got nasal qualities to voices that are criticized as being shrill or annoying, right? Again, in women. And so um, those are fairly obvious points to make. But the less obvious point I want to make is that actually, some of these trends, some of these tendencies, vocal fry in particular, can be incredible tools in vocal technique in terms of the types of techniques that I employ with my clients to, number one, so vocal fry and something else called glottal stops, which is just sort of a, a stop in the back of the throat that sounds like this, uh-oh, two glottal stops. And when the glottal stop is extended, uh-oh, right? That's vocal fry. That's where it's just, it's lengthened out a bit, but there's no, you're not really hearing any tone or any pitch. So glottal stops and vocal fry are a, actually a crucial tool that I use with my clients toward number one, creating an awareness of what their vocal cords feel like and how they can start to control them in ways they've never done before. And so I find that very interesting because vocal fry is so heavily criticized and in, actually in some articles it's decried as dangerous to the vocal cords, etc. But if done correctly, there's no danger whatsoever. Um, you're really just using the barest inner edges of the cords to make that sound. And as long as you're not pushing or, you know, there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this sound. As far as danger to your vocal cords, it's not going to create polyps or vocal nodules if it's used correctly. I use these techniques every single day in my own singing. So take that as you will. I just find it interesting that one of the most criticized characteristics of the voice, of, of women's voices, of young women's voices in particular, is actually a really incredible tool that they can use with the right guidance to gain control of their vocal cords and the blending of the different registers of their voice. And so, in fact, it is the most crucial element in I don't want to get too technical, but <laughs> bridging between the different resonance spaces in the body. So that's a whole other complicated topic for another time. But I just want to point out that the very things that we can be criticized for can very much be used to our advantage as vocalists, whether for singing or speaking. So I find that very interesting. And extending that to more nasal qualities or breathy qualities, I employ different versions of those qualities in my own singing. So, and mostly to convey certain emotions or, you know, to fit a particular style of song. So if I'm doing an entire set that is based in the 1920s, I might go into a bit more of a shrill nasal sound. Maybe 
I might be a bit breathier on some portions of maybe an R&B song or a pop song. So I use all of these as tools in my own arsenal. So the fact that these are so heavily criticized is, I find, very interesting. So I think that's enough about vocal shame. I think that the main point of talking about shame across two episodes is to emphasize how important it is to acknowledge so that we can start to break it down. We can start to make it less scary. We can start to look at it from further away. So in the second episode, we talked about thinking of our shame as, you know, some sort of a ooze or a slime or a liquid that kind of we watch enter our body, we transform it, we watch it exit our body, we have that kind of space, right? We, we turn it into something that we can have compassion for. That's a good thing to be able to do. Then pull the lens back on shame and look at it from a wider context. Anything we can do to distance ourselves from our shame, not to sweep it under the rug, just long enough and from just a far enough distance to have a different perspective on it to make it a little bit less internalized and scary and secret. And it's from that position of distance and logic and compassion that we can finally start to heal that shame and work through it in a way that allows us to dive more deeply into our vocal foundations and our vocal techniques so that we can integrate and apply what we learn to the real world and have a real sense of assuredness in our ability to produce the kinds of vocals that we want to, whether it's for speaking, um, public speaking, business leadership, for singing, for performing on stage, for speaking into a microphone, <laughs> uh, whatever the purpose, I believe there's so much that we can accomplish when we put shame in its place. So I won't be talking about shame again as a topic for a full episode. I think that was more than sufficient, but just know that the topic will come up again and again because it is such a huge part of conquering the negative mindset that so many of us have around our voices and getting us to fix the dysfunction there and reach our full vocal potential. So I hope that wasn't too dark or heavy. <laughs> it's only episode three, but on that note, there will only be eight episodes this season. It will end on December 20th. And then starting in 2024, it's going to be a slightly different format uh, there will be interviews, there will be live coaching, and then there will also be episodes like this where I just sort of wax poetic <laughs> about vocal mindset and technique, etc. So thank you so much again for being here. Keep at it, please, with your vocal work, and uh, you can stay tuned for how to reach me at the end of this episode. I will chat with you next week. Bye-bye. Mahalo for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of I Hate My Voice. To learn more about my online vocal programs, visit my website at diva.academy. That's D-E-E-V-A dot academy. You can also find me on social media with the hashtag at diva music. And don't forget, that's diva with two E's. My name is Nikki D. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Aloha. Aloha.